we go. Thanks, Roxy. Thanks, David, for that beautiful song. Our God is only a prayer away. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If I spit on you, Josh, I'm sorry. Okay. I suppose you've probably had a lot of different stuff on you. <laughs> uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've been slowly going through 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we started it last week, verses 1 to 13. We talked about how our daily testimony is supposed to be in line with our salvation. What we confess with our mouth should be lived out daily within our families, within the communities, at the grocery store, at the courthouse, at our job, wherever we're at, wherever it is, we should be living in such a way that people know that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Everywhere we should be asking the question internally, what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus Christ in this situation? It's a very important question because sometimes the situations that we're in, the activities that we are engaged in, are not just unchristian, but actually might go and cross the barrier into idolatry. The actions we are doing might be actions that are worshiping another god. And if that's the case, we shouldn't just abstain from those activities, but we should flee from them. In our passage this week and the next week, Paul is circling back around to a topic he was talking about in chapter 8. In chapter 8, the Corinthians had asked him, Hey, Paul, what about meat sacrificed to idols? Our markets are full of meat sacrificed to idols, Paul. Can we buy it? Can we eat it? And at that time, Paul said, Hey, it's just meat. It's just meat. So take and eat. Enjoy. And Paul comes back full circle to the meat question. In chapter 10, in this passage, he talks about eating food at a temple or at a religious celebration. Next week, he talks about eating food at someone's house. And in chapter 8, then in chapter 10, you put them all together, it gives a well-rounded answer to the, Paul's, to the Corinthians question, exploring all facets of it. The point that he keeps coming back to over and over and over again is the primacy of the gospel, that the gospel should be first and foremost in everything we do. And our life should be in line with the teachings of the gospel. Which, as we talked about last week and other weeks, brings up the question, what are we willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? So that our daily testimony will be in line with it. And as we study this week, some of those things might be near and dear to our heart, possibly. Let's read the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? 
Do I mean then that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the, pagan sacrif- the sacrifices of pagans are often to offered to demons, not to God. And they do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul says in this passage, simply put, that we were to have fellowship with Christ, not with demons. And you might say, well, hey, we live in America. We don't have demon worship here. What's the deal? Before we unpack that, let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That the truths that you hold never change. And the life that you call us to live never changes. Thank you for the way for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you that it doesn't change. And the hope that we have of eternity through Jesus Christ our Lord will never change. It is truly an awesome thing to know the unchanging God and find rest and peace and hope in a chaotic world in you. Lord, I ask that you continue to teach us what it means to rest in you, to find our enjoyment and our purpose, our priority, and our all desires in you. May we quickly throw off that which pulls us away, and may we run continually to your outstretched arms. Lord, Father, teach us that. As I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul says in this passage that we are to have fellowship with Christ. It's a nice phrase, but what actually does it mean? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 15 to 17, he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Paul, in in this passage, the verses we just read, is a description of the Lord's Supper. Communion, Eucharist, whatever name you want to throw on it. Paul, in his letters, rarely talks about communion. But in 1 Corinthians, he talks about it twice. Once here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then once in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about it twice in Corinthians because communion is very important. The symbolism of communion is very important in understanding how we are to live our life. And if we don't have a correct understanding of communion, we will not have a correct understanding of our life as in fellowship with Christ. In chapter 11, he gives a more fully expressed theology of the Lord's Supper. That's why every month when I stand up here with the bread and the wine, I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because it gives a basis for what we are doing. In chapter 10, he talks about the symbolism of communion. And he does it very uniquely because he reverses the order. Every first Sunday of the month, I get up here and I read from 1 Corinthians 11, then I pray, and I ask two men to come up here and distribute the elements, and we start with the bread. We pass the bread out, then we go to the juice, and we pass the juice out. That's how every Christian church does it. 
They might change how they do it. Instead of passing it out, you might come to the front. But it always starts with the bread and it goes to the juice. We do this that, this way because Jesus did it that way. Jesus did it that way because that's how they did it in the Passover. And we can go and talk about Passover imagery, but we're not going to do that. In our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reverses the order. He doesn't start with the bread and goes to the juice. He starts and talks about the juice and goes to the bread. And every good Christian in the Corinthian church, when they're hearing Paul write this in 1 Corinthians 10, they'll be saying, Paul, what are you doing? That's not how we take communion. But he reverses the order to highlight what fellowship with Christ means. Fellowship with Christ is a participation in a pledge. That's what the cup of juice means. It symbolizes the blood of Christ by which we are saved. And everyone who is a truly a follower of Christ has made a pledge to follow Christ and to say, hey, I am saved by the blood of the Lamb, and that's it. The process of saving faith. We voluntarily decide to trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation of our souls through the blood of Christ. We are not believing in some deity we're not trusting in the good works that we do or the religious rituals we're going through. We're not joining a social club. We are believing and receiving Jesus Christ for our Savior. If we've never made a decision, if you've never made that decision for yourself, if you've gone through and you're trusting in your good works or, or this deity that you, you're religious about or these religious rituals you're doing today, know that Jesus died to save you. He died that you might have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. The relationship that we were all created for. A relationship that if we do not have, we have this lost feeling. This lack of peace. This lack of hope. This, la this lacking. And we'll continue to feel lost until we come to the point of choosing to follow Jesus Christ as our Savior and resting in Him alone. So today... Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let another day go by. Take that cup that is offered and drink it. Once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we follow him through believer's baptism. That's the next step. We declare to the world that we are on Jesus' team. This summer, we baptized four people. And it was a great service. I loved it. Every person who came up confessed that they had believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation alone. And they wanted the world to know that fact. So if you've not been baptized, let me know. It's part of the participation in the pledge. There's like a squeaking happening over here. I won't get any closer over there. Woo! <laughs> That is weird. It's in the wire of my headset? I bet it is. Yeah. Oh, dear. It's a mouse. In my brain. Is it coming through the headset? A little bit? Yeah. Boy, it's really... Okay. You want to...
There we go. No squeaking? Okay. Weird. All right, baptism. It's the first step of obedience after salvation. Salvation says, I trust in Jesus for my Savior. Baptism says, I want the world to know that fact. I'm placing my identity, I'm showing the pledge that we have made. Identifying with Christ. Paul says this cup of thanksgiving that we're drinking is symbolizing the participation in the blood of Christ. Christ's blood saves us. And we're saying, that's my pledge, I'm going to follow him. He's my God, he's my savior, there's no one else, I'm on his team, and I'm never going to switch it. So, once we've made the pledge to follow Jesus, we then participate in his lifestyle. We participate in his lifestyle. We're called to participate in the actual physical lifestyle and stance toward life that Jesus had. Uh, Back in the 90s, there was a wave of fad going around called the WWJD movement. There were bracelets, there were bumper stickers, there were necklaces, there were tattoos of everyone putting this WWJD around. It means, what would Jesus do? And there are a lot of people that said, hey, we, we want to live our life in a way that Jesus would live it. And there was a lot of people who had a WWJD bracelet who just had the bracelet and who didn't actually live the bracelet. There were more bracelets and bumper stickers around than people actually doing this concept. The movement, the, the truth was great, but there's so many flaws in it, so many flawed teaching because people didn't actually bring it to life. If we're to have fellowship with Christ, we're to join his life. But what does it mean? We've made a pledge to follow him, and now we must follow through and make the pledge to actually follow him and to do it. But what does that mean? How did Jesus live? Well, he loved everyone. He did. He spent time with those that society did not like. He spent time with those who didn't like him. You might say, well, I, I, I've heard the stories in the New Testament. I, I know how, what, how Jesus treated the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day. He was pretty brutal to them. Yes. He, he called them out on his hip- their hypocrisy, and we'll talk about that, but he still pursued a relationship with them. He still spent time with them. He never refused to have a meal with them. He didn't say, oh, they're toxic, therefore I'm going to cut them out of my life. Jesus said, I'm here to love, and I'm going to pursue a relationship. Loving someone means to give them worth as an image bearer of God and to do right by them because of that. Sometimes doing right by them means calling them out and telling them the truth, which brings us to that next point. Yes, Jesus spoke up and stood for truth. Going back to that Pharisee situation, Jesus was the perfect example of the verse in Ephesians chapter 4 that says, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow up, become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Jesus always spoke truth. He pursued love with everyone. He saw their worth and did right by them, but he always spoke truth. And the truth that he shared was always geared so that people might know God. If they were hypocrites, he shared them truth about who God was and who they were so they might get over themselves and see God. 
He showed how religious understandings of his day and cultural lifestyle was not in keeping with godliness so that people would turn to God and find him. It's what Jesus' life was about. His life was about showing love and standing for truth. And ultimately, he gave himself completely so others might know God. Love, truth, giving himself completely. This ultimately means that he died for the world the ultimate act of love, but it wasn't just that. His whole life was giving himself so that others might know God. If you think about his birth, he left the glories of heaven to come to earth. That sacrifice, giving oneself completely so that the world might know. He was born in a stable, in poverty. That's not what people would willingly choose, but he willingly chose it because, number one, it was prophesied, but number two, that the outcasts of society, the shepherds, might be the first to know and see him. He spent long days in his life trudging dusty roads day in and day out to share truth and love to small and out-of-the-way towns. His life was giving himself completely. He crossed the stormy Sea of Galilee. Other ships that day were not doing it, The sailors that were on his ship were scared stiff because of the strength of the storm. They thought they were going to die, but Jesus went through that storm so he could go across the sea and save one demon-possessed man. His life was about giving himself completely, and he ultimately died on the cross, the worst miserable death imaginable that we might know God. This is our Savior. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are are to identify with Christ in his death and in his life. Seizing that redemption and that pattern for our lifestyle. So many of us claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. So many of us claim to have placed our faith in Jesus alone for the salvation of our souls, that we're not trusting in the good works, we're not trusting in the religious rituals, we're not trusting our family's faith. We have made the decision to trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. We are seizing that eternal relationship with the creator of the universe. But the question is, do our lives show it? Do our lives show it? Do we love everyone that comes into our path? Do we stand for truth no matter what? And do we give ourselves completely, not so that people will like us, but do we give ourselves completely so that others might know our Savior, the creator of the universe? Paul says we're to have a fellowship with Christ. And that's what it means. But not only does Paul say we're to have fellowship with Christ, but he says we're to have fellowship with Christ and not with demons. And this is where things get a little dicey. Because we can listen to the first half of the sermon and say, yes, that's true. Maybe feel a little convicted. Maybe not. But we're still comfortable. But whenever we get the term demon in the conversation, we start feeling a little queasy, like what's going on? Is is the pastor about to jump off the deep end? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are often to demons, not to God. 
and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now we need to define some things so that we can build a bridge from the Corinthians context to ours. We have to talk about what is idolatry. What is idolatry? Lots of times when we think about idolatry, we think of an idol. Like this. If you're a student of scripture, we might think of an idol like the golden calf that the Israelites made at Mount Sinai. We might think of an idol like Baal or Astra or Molech. All those fun names to say, especially like Molech, because you've got to do the at the end. Molech. It's fun. If we're a student of history, uh, we might think about the idols of the Native Americans. Uh, we might think about the idols of the Druids in Ireland. We could think about the idols of Asia. We could talk about ancestor worship. We could talk about all these idols, these, these things that people make to worship. I, I remember visiting a home of, of a Vietnamese student in Dallas. She was a Christian, but her roommate was not. And I went and visited her home, and there in the living room, on the corner of it was uh, a, uh, uh, not a Baal, a Buddha. Buddha there, a little statue there in the corner. For me, it's just a statue. For my friends, just a statue. But for her roommate, it was a thing that she worshipped. And there was a little shrine there with incense going on. Idol worship. When we think of idolatry, most of the time, we think of a worship of an image made to represent a god. The Ten Commandments speak to this. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 5. God said to the Israelites, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We in America don't have images that we worship most of the time. I don't know anyone here who has an image like that in their... Okay, someone might. Most people don't have an image in America. Most people don't. But if we think about idolatry just as a worship of an image, we might think that we're okay. So, everyone pat yourself on the back because we live in America. We live in an enlightened culture and we don't have to worry about idolatry. No one is patting themselves on the back. Except for one, thank you, sir, for obeying me. Do we have an issue with idolatry in America? Yes, we do. Think about Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul says greed is idolatry. Wait a minute. Just for the sake of the argument, say that we believed that idolatry was just worshiping an image. How can greed be idolatry? Well, because the problem isn't the image The problem's not the statue. The problem's not the picture. The problem is when we exalt something as higher than God or as more important than God. That is idolatry. Idolatry is we worship or give precedence to anything other than God. That's why Paul wrote to the Colossians about greed, saying it is idolatry. When we are greedy, we're giving something precedence or priority over God. We are saying that we would be fulfilled if only we had that one thing. If only we had that one thing. And so we want it. We desire it. We yearn for it. We go after it. We worship it. 
when only God is the one who can truly fulfill the desires of our heart. Idolatry. Addictions, we're not going there yet. Addictions, whether to substances or to pornography or to social media, addictions are a form of idolatry. Materialism, wanting stuff and saying, oh, I could just be happy if I just had this stuff, the form of idolatry. Workaholism, saying I need to work, I need to work to find fulfillment, is idolatry. So many things can become idols. We could, we could tick off the list. We could talk about politics being an idol. We could talk about policies. We could talk about voting systems. We could talk about all these different idols. We could talk about our kids. Kids can be an idol. We could talk about safety. We could talk about financial security. We could talk about education. We could talk about sports. Now, I'm sorry. I gotta go here. My wife shared with me something on Facebook. It says this. There's 0.0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There's a 100% chance that your child will stand before Jesus, get them to church. I loved it. It's great. When we give something precedence and that, it pers- that thing is not God and that thing starts taking away us away from what God has called us to, like attending church, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling together of believers. That is an idol. When we think that this thing can, can supply only what God can, that is an idol. So if these are idols in America, what does it mean to participate in them? Paul said, Corinthians, don't go to the temple feasts. Don't go to those religious rituals because you are actually participating in idolatry. The thing is not eating the meat. The thing is participating in idolatry. If Paul says that to Corinthians, what does it mean for us here in America to not participate in the American gods? Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Part of the worship of the Israelites was eating the meat sacrificed. The same was true for the pagan sacrifices. They did it for different reasons. But the bottom line was those who ate participated in the worship. And those who participated in the worship participated with or identified with the gods of the worship, the god of the temple. Next week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, we are, by doing it, we are participating with or identifying with our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that is. Paul writes to the Corinthians in Corinthians 10, 20 to 21. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You can have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Certain Corinthians were going to the pagan religious festivals because they said, hey, there's only one true God. The other gods are nothing. Therefore, the religious feasts are nothing. Therefore, I can participate in them. But Paul says, no, behind every false god, even though the god is nothing, there is a demon behind the false god, something trying to pull you away from worshiping the one true God. Satan is in the Garden of Eden, handing the fruit of the knowledge of tree of evil out to Eve, saying, take, eat, take, eat, because he's trying to pull Adam and Eve away from the worship of the one true God. 
in the same way. Something is here in America handing something to us, presenting us with money, presenting us with drugs, presenting us with alcohol, presenting us with sex, with cars, with perfect, the idea of perfect children, presenting us with financial security, presenting us with safety, presenting us with all these other things that we say, oh, I want that. That is going to be my pursuit. That is going to be my desire. And the thing is saying, well, did God really say? If you just did this, if you just believed this, if you just looked away, if you just looked at, if you just, life would be perfect. Life would be so perfect if we just followed these things. And Paul says, we cannot be united with a demon and with God. So what does it mean for us to participate in the worship of the idols of America? The Corinthians had it so easy. Really, they did. They knew, oh, I, if I go to this temple and participate in the religious rituals, that's idolatry. They had it easy. Our idolatry is sucked into the core of our culture. So what does it mean to participate? Thinking about the gods of America, we could talk about all sorts of gods. I've I mentioned the whole list. We could talk about nat- national security. We could talk about national identity. We could talk about money and wealth. We could talk about guns. We could talk about cars. We could talk about fame. We could talk about collegiate sports and professional sports. We could talk about social media. We could talk about technology as a whole. We could talk about sex. We could all talk about all sorts of things. What does it mean to participate in the idols of America? It means that we spend more time in those things than we do in the worship of God. That's idolatry. It means that we find fulfillment in those things instead of finding fulfillment in God. It's another definition of idolatry. It means that we place those things in our our priority instead of having fellowship with Christ and his people as our priority. Sometimes, instead of asking the question, uh, what is participation, sometimes it's easier to say, what is not participating in that idolatry? I may know, know what it means to worship an American idol, but I definitely know what it means not to worship an American idol. I know what it means to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, my fellowship with Christ, and I'm not going to come even near that line, I'm going to flee idolatry. Last week for our movie night, we watched a movie called Chariots of Fire. A guy by the name of Eric Little, the true story. The, the movie was made in the 80s by non-Christians. But the guy... It started, and they did an amazing job talking about his life and his faith. He was favored to win an Olympic gold in a certain race. If he ran that race, he would get that Olympic gold. It was his, hands down. But that race was on a Sunday. And Eric Little went up to the leaders of his country and the Olympic board and said, you know what, I'm a Christian. And on Sunday, I worship my God in church, because that's what he's called me to do. I do not, I will not race on Sunday. And everyone said, how could you do that? You're going to lose the gold. Your country's going to lose their gold. Why would you do this? Why would you do this? And he said, this this is my belief. I'm not going to run on a Sunday because I need to worship my God. So he didn't. He ran a different race a race that he should have lost. Everyone said he should have lost it. But God blessed him for the stance that he took. 
If you haven't seen the movie, let me know. You need to see it. It is an amazing movie of what it means to stand up for one's faith no matter what. Eric Little refused to participate in the idolatry of sports. Yes, he ran. He loved sports. He said that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure because God made him this way. But the sport wasn't his God. Jesus Christ was. His priority was his faith and his fellowship, not sports, so he fled that idolatry. We need more families in America that will stand up to their culture and say, I'm going to flee the idolatry of sports. I'm going to worship God instead. We need Americans who will stand up through their words and actions and to declare where their hope is, especially as a new election cycle starts. So many Christians are showing their idolatry through how they respond to elections and politics. And we need to stand up and say where our hope is. That we might have opinions, but our hope is not in voting policies. Our hope is not in political candidates. Our hope is not the ability to carry guns. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And change and declare beyond a shadow of a doubt that change for this nation will not come through elections or policies, but change will come when the nation turns to Jesus. That is our hope. Anything else that is offered as hope is a lie and a sham. There's so many other idols in America we could talk about, what it means to not participate and worship in them. Paul says, oh my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Our lives need to show a fellowship with Christ, not with a demon. You might say, well, pastor, that's kind of harsh. Just throwing out, pulling out of the sky all these idols you talked about. Sports on Sunday, that's not demonic. Yeah, true. But I'd appreciate what C.S. Lewis writes. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letter. He also wrote Chronicles of Narnia. He loved writing allegories about Christian truth because it brings it to light so much better in story form. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis wrote. It's a fictional correspondence between two demons. He says, Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. One demon says to another, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to rise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. Persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Demons hide themselves so much. The main demon then says to his protege, he says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. They make it very easy to turn away. They, they make it very enticing. One pastor I look up to wrote this. He said, the more a kid hears God's word, the more there's an opportunity for God's word to convince them of the gospel good news. Sports on Sunday is a very creative ploy of Satan to keep people from Jesus. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm bashing sports. I don't want you to think that I'm bashing politics or policies. I don't want you to think that I'm bashing any of these other things that we in America have claimed as our gods, our idols. But what he says goes across the board for anything that routinely takes someone from obeying God's word and following Jesus. 
the decisions we make every day are not demonic per se, but the decisions every day are a choice. If I am, am I going to pursue fellowship with Christ or am I not? That's the choice. And if we're not pursuing fellowship with Christ, we are naturally not pursuing fellowship with Christ, which is the realm of those things that are against Christ, the realm of the demons. There's no middle ground. Are we pursuing Christ or are we not? Will we follow him or not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. We are to have fellowship with Christ, not with demons. If we look at our lives and you say, you know what, I have not been worshiping an image, but I have been worshiping an idol in my life, how do we stop? How do we stop? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. Great phrase, easier said than done, especially when you have a whole culture built around the worship of these idols. How, you know, how, what kid wants to tell their whole team, sorry, I know the game's on Sunday, but I can't participate. No kid wants to do that. The whole team's gonna turn against him. But some kids might have to take that stand for the sake of following Jesus Christ. The first step is to recognize the idol in one's life. Change cannot happen if we don't see the need for a change. It can't. We could say, oh, that's great, Peter. I'm just gonna live my life. Don't see the need to change. You're not gonna change. And it's hard because we live in a society of idol worshipers. The Corinthians lived in a society where the social gatherings were the pagan festivals. And so for them to say, you know what? I'm not gonna take part in that. They were actually saying to the culture, I don't want part of you, which isn't good. Their national identity, the showing, showing their allegiance to Rome was through some of these pagan festivals and feasts. And by them saying, you know, I, I can't take part in that, they're actually saying, I don't want to be a Roman. I, don't wanna, I, I am against my nation, even though that's not what they're saying. But that's how it's perceived. And Paul is saying, you can't do it, Corinthians. No matter how it's perceived, do not take part in the worship. Don't do it. It's important to know that Paul never told the Corinthians to not have any part in their culture. They could still buy the meat from the market. They could still eat that meat in their home. They could still eat the meat in their friend's home. They could still use pagan money, which had the idol's images on it. They could still take part in their culture. But the, the the important thing, they couldn't worship it. They couldn't worship it. In the same way, we can participate in sports. We can still pursue financial peace. We can still seek the safety of our families. We can still promote political candidates and good moral policies. We just have to do it to make sure that we're not creating an idol. We have to do it in a way that everyone knows that our hope is in Jesus Christ and that our priority, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is Jesus Christ. In him alone. How do we stop? We recognize the idol and then we pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ. We flee to the arms of Jesus. The only true cure for idolatry is passionately pursuing the one true God who died for us. We think about infidelity. If anyone's tempted with infidelity, the only true cure for that is to passionately pursue their husband or their wife. It's the only cure. In the same way, the only cure for infidelity with our God is passionately 
pursuing him. I love Tim Keller's quote. He says on getting rid of idols, you also have to have a very strong prayer life. That prayer life can't just be petitioning. There has to be encounter, experience, and genuine joy. You have to have Jesus Christ increasingly capture your affections. Remember, an idol is when we give something precedence over God. So to fix idolatry, we flip it. We give precedence, primacy, priority, all our desires to God alone. We passionately pursue him, not just as our God, but as our lover. It's one of the reasons why I have small group prayer time during the church service, to get us all comfortable with praying. Because truthfully, so many people are not comfortable with praying. But the more you practice it, the more you do it, and the more you're drawn into it. We have Wednesday night prayer nights to give another opportunity for that so that we can come together and pursue God. And we do it, yes, to give us an opportunity, but we do it because we as a church need to be praying. So it gives us an opportunity to do that, to pursue our God, but it gives us the practice. I remember hearing, talking with some people who were unsure of starting the Wednesday night prayer night, and that, but they came and they kept coming and now they say that is their sweetest time of the week for them to come before the throne of God together. I encourage you to come Wednesday nights, 7 o'clock to my house. We eat pie or cake or cookies, some sort of sweet thing. That's my bribe. And then we pray together. If you see an idol in your life, take advantage of the opportunities that are given to you to passionately pursue Jesus. Pursue that vibrant relationship and see what can change. Paul says we are to have fellowship with Christ, not with demons. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for being our God. Even when we were